Just before noon, on November 22, 1912, dressed in his freshly pressed white shirt, Robert Anderson looked upon a Tampa crowd of more than 1,000 people. In fact, the crowd was so large that it set records and made the headlines of every local and state newspaper the following day. His popularity was so great that people were practically stacked on top of each other with so little space between them that navigating the crowd was nearly impossible. Some were so eager for a glimpse of him that they had perched on top of walls, while others climbed atop the tallest trees they could find, just so they could keep him in their line of sight. Even with the crowd appearing at maximum capacity, Robert Anderson could still see that people were flooding in through the gates. And he knew the reason so many were there to see him. They had all come to see the man they simply knew as the killer die beneath the gallows of Tampa. I'm Steve Blanchard, and this is Phantom History. Some say that roaming the streets of Tampa is a man wearing a pressed white shirt, dark pants, and white socks. He is rarely seen, but when he is, it appears as though he is doing everything he can to avoid detection. He is always seen slipping around a corner or disappearing down some alley. Those who have seen him say he has two very distinguishing features, his nicely pressed white shirt and white socks, and a hangman's noose loosely hanging around his neck. For many, the image is undoubtedly the spirit of the rather timid Tampa Electric Company employee Robert Anderson, Tampa's first recorded serial killer. Nearly a year before Robert Anderson looked out on that expansive crowd in the Tampa jail yard, the city of Tampa had again come into its own. Just a few years before, in 1908, a massive fire destroyed 18 city blocks of Ybor City and decimated all five of its major cigar factories. The fire essentially halted all cigar production and economically wounded the entire state of Florida. Tampa was finally rebounding from those fires and reclaiming its status as a major shipping port that, combined with Henry Plant's expansive railroads across the state, made it a thriving hub of activity. An era of prosperity was returning to Tampa, so in April 1912, when the fire started, the entire city became uneasy. Granted, buildings of the time were no stranger to fire. Fire codes were essentially non-existent, and most structures were at least supported by wooden beams that would burn easily. But there was something different about the fires of 1912. In the month of April alone, 46 of them erupted in Tampa, way above the already seemingly high average of 18 or so a month. Thankfully, the quick thinking of the Tampa Fire Department saved most structures, but there were never any solid suspects linked to the arsons. Then, a letter tied to a rock changed the entire conversation. Not too long after the first fire was lit, a handwritten letter attached to a stone was thrown over the jail wall. The anonymous author told authorities that the fires were in response to the mixing of races on 5th and 6th Avenues in Tampa. That area was the red light district of the day, and the letter writer was disturbed that white men were associating with the mixed race women working in the area. The author claimed that city officials were aware of this behavior and that if they didn't put a stop to it, the entire city would burn down. The author even included burned matches in the letter to show the severity of the threat. 
Letters arrived almost daily threatening to burn down the city of Tampa. After the Tampa Box Company plant was lit aflame on May 4th, the letter writer gave specifics as to how the fire started, adding legitimacy to the writings. On one single night, May 22nd, four fires were started by the person the newspapers dubbed the Firebug. One of the most dangerous of the year was at a furniture storage house and resulted in substantial damage. In all, nearly 50 fires were started in the one month of May alone. Fortunately for the city, the fire department was extremely effective and minimized the damage. That was not unnoticed by the letter writer, who admitted the efficiency of the fire department in a later letter and said the next fire would be lit when the city was full of visitors. In the meantime, the writer said, killings would be the best means of communicating displeasure over the intermingling of the races. It didn't take long for the firebug to make good on that threat. On May 28, 1912, Manuel Perez was working in his small Spanish restaurant on the southern steamship line dock when he was attacked and brutally beaten with an iron pipe. The murder was gruesome and soon the anonymous letter writer took responsibility for the slaying. The author, who was now dubbed simply The Killer by local press, struck several times that summer and fall. On two separate August nights, two women of mixed race were struck by bullets while relaxing on their respective porches. The first woman was struck in her arm and breast and survived the shooting. The second woman had more severe wounds after being shot through her abdomen. Fortunately, after many days in the hospital, she also survived. Marie Louise Rodriguez was the killer's next victim, and she wasn't as lucky. The white woman and wife of a Cuban cigar maker was severely wounded by a gunshot while sitting in her family room. The bullet came from outside and entered through her window. She died the next day. By this time, police were getting desperate. There was no description of the shooter, and they had very few leads. Two more slayings occurred in October. This time, a white prostitute named Viola Danford was killed when she was shot twice in the back while inside her home. A day later, on October 4th, a Spanish man named Esteban Candoa was shot and killed in the street. Finally, the same day that Candoa was killed, the police got a significant lead. The two women of mixed race who survived attempts on their lives were able to identify their attacker. They both pointed to Robert Anderson, a black and timid employee of the Tampa Electric Company. Anderson was immediately placed under arrest and eventually taken to his home on Morgan Street, where his belongings were thoroughly searched. There, authorities discovered everything they needed to build a case, a 32 caliber revolver and more than 100 cartridges that matched the bullets found at the crime scenes around Tampa. They also found a myriad of disguises that included a suit, a hat, a wig, and even a dress. While the officers were distracted with their search, the handcuffed Anderson slipped out of the home and ran. He found someone to cut off the cuffs and made his way to Plant City. Then he traveled to Mulberry, Lakeland, Sanford, and Jacksonville. He was on the run for a month before he was finally apprehended in Jacksonville and brought back to Tampa for his trial. While being interrogated, Anderson admitted to killing Viola Danford, but explained that she had not originally been a target. 
He said he happened to pass her house as she sat down in a chair near the window, and that's when he shot. Anderson admitted he did not know anything at all about the woman. He said the same about Mrs. Rodriguez, the wife of the cigar maker. When asked why he shot her, he said that he had nothing against her and, in fact, he didn't even know her. He just went to that house to shoot someone, and it happened to be her whom he spotted on the porch. He also estimated that he had set nearly 100 fires that year, but recanted his confession on a number of other killings. When asked why he had originally confessed if he was innocent of these crimes, he said that since he had so much, quote, deviltry in the city, that he might as well take credit for the entire carnival of crime. Even before Anderson went to the gallows, he drew a crowd. There were so many requests by people to see him that the sheriff opened the jail and let groups of five to six people at a time in to visit the cell. They simply wanted to look upon the killer. Each time a group was permitted in, Anderson would stand in his cell and stare back, returning each curious gaze with a gaze of his very own. Reports state that most of who did visit him stood back at least three feet from the iron bars that separated Anderson from society. They were fearful that his shackles might come loose and he would leap forward and attack again. The demand to gaze upon Robert Anderson was so large that the sidewalk was jammed in front of the police headquarters by people waiting in line. The Tampa Tribune described the scene like this, quote, This morning he appeared in his cell as composed as though he had never felt the lust for human blood, apparently oblivious or resigned to the fate in store for him, as interested in seeing the people who had come to see him as they of him. End of quote. In short, he was fascinated by the people who came to see him as they were of him. He almost relished the attention. In less than 30 days from his initial capture, Anderson was tried and convicted for two murders and arson. He was also suspected of two other killings and multiple other shootings. On the morning of November 22, 1912, Robert Anderson, the man newspapers and residents referred to as simply the killer, gave no speech and he made no additional confession before he died at the end of a hangman's noose. Newspaper reports in the Tampa Tribune say it took nearly eight minutes after the trap door opened and he fell to the end of the rope for the medical examiner to finally announce that the admitted killer's heart had stopped. The announcement of his death finally put an end to nearly a year of terror for the residents of Tampa. More than 100 years have passed since the public hanging of Tampa's first documented serial killer and serial arsonist. The celebrity-level fascination people had for him seemed to be mutual. From the letters he delivered to the authorities, to the return stares he shared with visitors while awaiting his execution, Robert Anderson seemed to enjoy the spotlight associated with his crimes, at least on some level. But, celebrity or not, Anderson was not a good man. His lack of remorse for the lives he took, or the lives he altered, disturbed all who encountered him. Some believed his emotionless state reflected an evil in his soul that was so deep that even death by hanging couldn't prevent him from roaming the streets of Tampa. Could it be that the sheer number of witnesses to his death impacted his ability to move on to the afterlife?
Did the lasting impression his death left on so many peering eyes help at least a part of him remain in this world to never be forgotten? Maybe that's why to this day, more than 100 years after his very public execution, the killer, Robert Anderson, is still walking among us, looking for another structure to light a flame or another victim to randomly murder in cold blood. Phantom History is researched, written, and produced by me, Steve Blanchard. Music is courtesy of Shane Ivers of SilvermanSound.com, Chad Crouch, and Raphael Crew. If there is a mysterious location that you think would make for an interesting episode, please let me know by emailing podcast at phantomhistory.com. You can also follow this podcast on Instagram through my podcast handle, at Phantom History, and see photos, news articles, and other extras on the podcast website, phantomhistory.com. In addition, I invite you to like the Phantom History page on Facebook, where you will receive updates, photos, participate in discussions, and more. Please consider giving Phantom History a five-star review on whatever platform you use to enjoy podcasts. And thank you for listening.